I'm Pastor Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. Our goal is to provide young couples with the resources they need to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. We are so glad that you're here. Let's get to the lesson. Whose voice can calm any wave, Jesus? All right. Well, all right, that's it. No more. Getting too full. So, I've got uh, the opportunity to talk to you guys this morning about uh, about James. Well, technically, Philip's been teaching through James, or just started teaching through James. But James is one of my favorite books uh, by a long shot. And uh, I wanted to take the time to look a little bit more in depth about why James is important by looking at uh, other sections of Scripture as well. Let me. Oh my gosh! This is why you're not supposed to preach from a tablet. <laughs> open up, stupid. There you go. All right, it's open. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I know better. I don't care. <laughs> I can feel his judgment. <laughs> um, so this morning, I wanted to talk about James, and so far, you've only gotten through James one, right? So James 1 is a really good setup, and I feel like it sets the tone for the rest of the book of James. So to start off with, what is the theme of James so far that Philip has been pointing to? I know not everyone in here is a regular to this class. That's perfectly fine. James is a short book. Go ahead and and turn to James and and, and look at that with me. Uh, We're going to be jumping around to a few different passages, specifically uh, 1 John and uh, John 14, so you can get your... Get your Bibles ready for some Bible drills. But James, so far, what is the theme? What What is standing out so far in this class's study of James? Going through trials. And what does that look like according to James? Joy going through trials. And where does the joy come from when something's difficult? Oh, who said that? Proving. Why did you say proving? Because the trial is a test of us, but more so it is a it is a passive test of God. That He shows Himself to be faithful in all circumstances and trials, even though we might fall short. So He proves Himself. He always proves who He is. Did you teach all that? <laughs> yeah, good grief. Yeah, so so uh, it, the trials proves God's faithfulness. And what did you say about us in that? It, it bridges the gap between us and Him. Bridges the gap. That's that's awesome. Um, I know I'm I'm having a back and forth discussion with a lapel mic on. And I, and I apologize for that, whoever's listening to the recording. Uh, but this is what I, I wanted us to think. So James is a, a book of wisdom literature. It's kind of like, like the book of wisdom literature in the New Testament. Whereas in the Old Testament, there's a lot of sections of wisdom literature. There's obvious ones, you know, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job and so on. But in James, it kind of follows in that same type of, of theme. It is an epistle. It is a letter to a church. 
But the way that James lays things out in there, it is where as a Christian, as a Christ follower in the context of James, it is the practical wisdom literature of where the rubber meets the road in a Christian's life. So when the difficult things happen, when trials happen, it shows how we are connected to God and it proves out that we're not crazy, that I can have joy even in the midst of garbage because of God, because of how great God is. James is showing the fact that what Jesus says is true by the way life lives and works out. Uh, Philip told me that he's talking about it as discipleship 101. That's kind of what James is. This is the really practical stuff. It's the nuts and bolts of being a disciple, of what it looks like to live a selfless, Christ-like way with our mind fixed on God. But it's not just an instruction manual. It's not just good advice. What are some other areas of Scripture that back up what we know about the book of James or what you've seen so far, even in just chapter 1? You know, if, if you're not, if you've not been in this class, but you really like James like I do, feel free to share as well. But, uh, what, what are some other areas of scripture that back up what James is talking about? What's some scripture that comes to mind? What did you say about family? Uh, it starts off with uh, you are no longer a slave uh, to fear, but uh-huh. you are being called Alpha Kings, Alpha Father, paraphrase. Uh-huh. Uh, but at the end it says you will share in the family, share in the glory, but also the persecutions. Right. So, so as an adopted son and daughter <coughs> with Christ, what did, what did Christ's life look like? The way that he lived things out? Obviously, he was m- murdered, <laughs> right? Now, and we're not, we're not called to be murdered necessarily, but we we're not called to comfort. We're not called to easy street, right? That's why the prosperity gospel is wrong. Just look at the life of Christ and the life of the disciples. It proves that. But we're called to a family. We're called to joy in the midst of trials. We're called to so much more than just mere temporary comfort, because eternal life, eternal adoption into the family starts at salvation while we're still alive in this mortal body, and it continues on for forever. And that is the practical aspect of what James is pointing out, right? So when life happens, when the rubber meets the road, it proves the fact that you are adopted into that family by how you live those things out, by what that looks like. So with that in mind, turn to 1 John 2, starting in verse 3. First John 2, starting in verse 3. Now I will go ahead and read that. John is telling us this. Uh, <clears throat> and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. 
At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So point number one, to go along with 1 John 2, 3 through 11, is knowing Christ opens our eyes. So I have this question for you. How can you tell when you've spent a lot of time with someone? Right? Even just anecdotally, how can you tell when you've spent a lot of time with someone? It's both and. <laughs> you finish their sandwiches and sentences. <laughs> what is, what is, oh man, now I'm thinking about that. <laughs> what, what is, uh, what is another thing? That's, that's exactly what I'm thinking. What's something else that's like that? You guys know what I'm pointing at. What did I say it was? Two, yeah. You pick up their mannerisms. What else do you pick up by being around someone for a long time? Habits? Language. Have you ever been around someone, this is not spiritual at all, have you ever been around someone who says something just like way too much and then you hear yourself saying it and then you like can't stop saying it and it's like, man, so-and-so just always says this, now I'm saying it, it's driving me crazy, you know? And then all of us in here are old enough, especially if you have kids where you've heard your parents come out of your mouth, right? <laughs> That's frustrating, isn't it? <laughs> oh man, it's it's sometimes sometimes it's annoying because you don't want to be like that, and other times you say it and you're like, "Dad was right," <laughs> you know, when it comes out of your mouth, <laughs> just unintentionally. So you start picking up their habits, their phrases, their mannerisms. So obviously, knowing Christ opens our eyes. John is telling us that whoever abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. How did he walk when he went through trials? How did he walk when he was persecuted, right? That's what you were pointing at, the fact that you can have joy going through these difficult times. But how do we know that those things are real in us, right? How do we know, just looking at the scripture, what does it tell us that we, how do we know that that is true in us? on a practical level. When we obey his commands. We know it on a practical level because we obey his commands. Verse 3. And by this we know we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. The same word for know is used twice here. We know that we know right? He's, he's emphasizing this. We know that we know him. It's proven if we obey his commandments, right? So on a, on a fun level, we were thinking about the fact that I've been around someone and I know them and I'll pick up their phrases and habits and stuff like that. But on a very spiritual level, I know that I know Christ because I've spent time with him. And when, when I spend time with him, the reality, the truth of who he is the spirit working in and through him, in and through his word, when I study his word, it becomes manifest, it becomes noticeable because it comes out of me in the way I live and act and, inter and interact with other people, especially during the hard times. It shows that something else is different, right? So it shows that there has 
been a change. See, our, our obedience, though, that we do, we don't do it to gain his love, right? We don't obey to gain his love. It is an evidence of our love to him. Now, not everyone in here is a parent yet. A lot of us are. All of us are, have been children, though, right? So thinking about that as a parent, how do we teach this truth towards our children that good parents will love them regardless of their actions? Maybe some of us in here didn't experience that, didn't have good parents that loved us regardless of our actions. But we know that God is a good God. So how do we teach that truth that we will love them regardless of their actions as we look at this because we also have messed up and don't always keep God's commandments? How do we teach this? You do it. You do it? How do you do that? How do you do it? Mess up, you show them grace, and you disciple them. People, they get so caught up in the cultural aspect of discipline. Mm -hmm. But as my wife loves to say, discipline is to teach. Mm -hmm. You're there to teach. And it's not about causing them, not beating them so hard they never do that again. Because mm -hmm. they remember how scared they were and how much it hurt. That's not how our God treats us. I'm glad. I'm very glad of that fact. Um, so showing grace and mercy and love and how we interact with them helps them to, I guess, understand that there is a God who could treat us that way. Because if you've been treated yeah. your whole life where the moment you step out of line, you're beaten back into shape and everything is just punishment focused and you're bad and you're wicked from your parent. And then you go to church and you're taught about this God that's just love and grace and it sounds like sunshine and unicorns and that's not real and I'm good. Yeah. So we have to emulate Christ's love with our children. What do we do? So we have to emulate Christ's love, but what do we do when we don't? As a fallen parent, how do we, what do we do? Don't be too big to apologize to your kid when he needs it. Exactly. That, that's... That's the problem that happens with parents and pastors or anyone else that's in authority. It's when they, they, whether or not they put themselves on the pedestal, but when they allow themselves to stay on the pedestal and, and try and force themselves to stay up there in, in everyone else's eyes, that's when hard, hard feelings happen, right? When, when you hurt your kid's idea of who God is. Uh, because in the fact that I'm going to mess up, and I, and I won't always show grace in that type of way. It's going to happen. Probably today. You know, like it's, it's going to happen. But not being so big that I can't apologize. And in that apology, point them to the God who doesn't act that way. And it's not, hey, I'm sorry that I messed up, but hey, we have a good God and he's a good father. But it's also the fact that pointing out to our own children... And this is, this is in a parent-child thing, but even in a discipleship aspect, pointing out to that person that I've messed up and I've wronged, that, man, you need to know I'm not perfect and I still need God's grace. I might be in a position of authority or discipleship over you, but I need God's grace. So with that in mind, thinking through what it looks like on a practical level for us to know Christ, to have our eyes open, because we can't have our eyes open and then think that I deserve to be on that pedestal, right? Part of having our eyes open and obeying Christ is also understanding my position as an adult, my position as a parent, my position as a disciple in the way that I, one, relate to God, and two, relate to other people. 
So looking through the rest of this text here, one of the things that we see is there is a sign of obedience when it comes to knowing Christ. If I know him, I keep his commandments. That's what 3, 4, and 5 is talking about. But there is also a sign of imitation. If I know Christ, I've spent time with him, I will walk in the way in which he walks. And if I know Christ, if I know the Lord, the creator of all things, then I, there is also a sign of love. Because if I don't love him, and if I don't love those that he has created in his image well, then I don't actually know him. Because he loves that way, right? Like we were just saying, you know, thank God that he has grace on me, even, even though I've messed up so, so horribly in my life. So if I've messed up so horribly in my life, as he says in verse 9 here, whoever says, uh, in, whoever says that he's in the light or that he knows Christ, whoever says, oh, I know Christ, my eyes have been opened, but I hate my brother, he's still in darkness, right? He is still in darkness at the end of verse 11 because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He is walking in the dark. So all of that, thinking back to the very beginning of, of this section, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. But if we say we know him and don't keep his commandments by hating a brother as an example, no, we're still walking in darkness. Our eyes are shut. Our eyes have not been open. <clears throat> so, let's move on. Uh, point number two, loving Christ changes our status. I'll write it eventually. Loving Christ changes our status. But I want to ask you, uh, no, no, I'm not going to ask you because you already answered that question because you pointed it out about being adopted into the family. That's exactly what I'm talking about. But let's look at this in John 14. So flip over to John 14. Uh, that's where we're going to be looking at. John 14, starting in verse 15, says, If you love me, there's, that, there's a good if there again, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no longer, but you will see me because I live, you will, uh, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So whoever loves me, will keep my commandments. Do you see the connection there? That should be obvious, right? John wrote both of these. I love John's writings because there is a consistent theme, an obvious theme of love that goes throughout them. And that is something that I want to point to James as well. I love James. It's, like I said, it's probably my favorite book. I feel like I can relate everything in some way to three things, which is the greatest commandment to the uh, fruits of the Spirit and to the book of James. Because James is showing you, if, if you don't actually love God and love people and the fruit of the Spirit's not evident in your life, here's a lot of examples of what that looks like, of when you're going to mess it up, right? And how we can really uh, lean into that. So looking at what, John, what Jesus is saying here in John 14, 
if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How can this passage be interpreted wrongly? How have you, how have you heard it applied, good or bad? <laughs> Say that for those in the back. <laughs> If you keep my commandments, I will love you. Does it say that? Does anyone have a, there's, I'm reading from the ESV. Does anyone have a translation that, that says it that way? No, no, because it's not there. It is not there. If you keep my commandments, I will love you. That is not what it says at all. You see, love precedes obedience. Because as it goes on here, it says, I will not leave you as orphans, right? Because I live, you will also live. Jesus is talking to those that he loves. He's talking to the disciples. But as a disciple, as a Christ follower, put, your, put yourself in there. Because Christ lives, I will live also. Jesus is saying, I'm in the Father, and you and me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Love precedes the obedience. It's not saying, keep my obedient, like, obey me, and then I will love you. But it's saying, because I love you, you can and will keep my commandments. It seems to change gears here a little bit in verse 16. Verse 16 to verse, uh, what is it, verse 20. Looking at that. I feel like 15 and 21 are obviously related, because it's talking about commandments there. What's it talking about there in 16 to 20? Talking about the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit have to do with us keeping God's commandments? He enables us. Enables us to do what? To what? Yeah. Yes. It's that the, the already but not yet state as a believer with the Holy Spirit living in us. We are already renewed spiritually, but we still have our flesh that we contend with. But it gives us the power. More than anything, I think it opens our eyes to what's going on. Yeah, it gives us the power for sure, but it's hard for us as fallen, you know, time-bound, narrow-minded humans to, to get it right if we don't see what's happening, right? That's why as a parent, when you're teaching your kids, it's so important to not just say, obey my commands because I said so, but to explain it well, to help open their eyes. And as a believer, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. Knowing Christ, being in right relationship with God, brings the Holy Spirit into our lives. It changes our status by bringing us into the family of God and empowering us through the Holy Spirit to then see where we mess up, to see where there is opportunities to, to mess up, and instead messing up to obey, empowering us to do the hard thing, which is to obey, empowering us to do the hard thing, which is to be joyful in the midst of trials. Knowing Christ changes everything. <clears throat> One of the commentaries I was reading when talking about the Holy Spirit said this. He said, he, the Holy Spirit, he is invisible. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. Yet he is real and active. Without a radio, radio waves go unnoticed. 
The Holy Spirit is unnoticed by the unsaved who have no spiritual life. I thought that was a really good analogy. It made me think immediately of what the Old Testament says in a lot of places, what Jesus says over and over, he who has ears, let him hear, right? It's kind of like the Holy Spirit gives you that that upgrade, right? It gives you the right antenna. The Spirit's there and he's moving and active regardless of if you're paying attention, right? And coming into faith, knowing Christ, having our eyes opened and our, our status changed, we are now aware of what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. He who has ears, let him hear. That is talking to those in whom the Holy Spirit is moving and active in their life. <clears throat> so thinking back to, this, to the previous point, what does it really look like to know someone? How much more intense can a family relationship be, especially when it comes to uh, to loving them and taking on other people's qualities. In a practical sense, obviously I'm thinking practically as people with families, but also spiritually, uh, what does it really look like in a healthy way to know someone and take on their qualities? Discipleship. So what, what does good discipleship look like to where, to where that happens? Mm-hmm. Am I missing something? No, they want to get to help with kiddos. Oh, kids, kids, kids. Got it, got it. I'm missing kids. My kid, I drop them, they're gone, right? <laughs> so discipleship and really getting to know someone on a practical level and seeing the way that they act and react in, dif- in difficult things. And that is what's going back to... Uh, John, 1 John 2, someone that abides in Christ, walks the way he does, walks the way Christ walked, because they've observed it, they've seen it, they've seen it in the scriptures, they've seen it in the lives of other disciples who are walking the way Christ ought to walk. All right, moving along, now we're going to go to James, and James 2 is we're going to look at, and you'll see why. You haven't yet got here in this class officially yet, but this is why I was thinking about this, because... Like I said, I love the book of James. Uh, so James 2, starting in verse 16. I'm going to go ahead and read that. It says, what good is it? Or not 16, 14. Uh, James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they uh, needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see faith You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead... 
So also faith, apart from works, is dead. So what are, just with James in mind here, what are the connections that we see from Christ's teachings, from John's applications, to the wisdom and the encouragement that James is giving us here in James 2? What are some connections you see there? No connections? That's exactly what I was thinking. So these are the words that jump out about what is being talked about. All three of them are applying to how, as a disciple, we show that we are connected to Christ, that we are connected to the Messiah. If we know him, our eyes are open. If we love him, we're going to obey him. Because we love him, we can't help but want to obey him. And if we think that if this is true, then our faith Point number three, living for Christ is confirmed by our actions. Our faith is going to be shown by the way we live. It's going to be worked out in the way that we live and respond to things. So when you think of James, remember the mirror analogy from chapter one, right? Person that, that looks at a mirror and then goes away and immediately forgets what, they're, what they look like. In this regard, it's like as a Christian, as a Christ follower, looking in the mirror, we should see Christ reflected in us. And as we walk away, remember that reflection of who we are, who we are connected to, the fact that we know him, that our status has changed because we are brought into his family. I am a part of that family. So our actions, as we leave looking at the mirror, we should remember what that looks like. But if someone that claims that they have faith, that they say, oh, I, I look in the mirror and I see Christ reflected in me, but I walk away and immediately forget what it looks like. I immediately go back to worldly selfish, hopeless actions, then you don't really have faith. Right? James is exploring the nature of what saving faith looks like. There is a faith, quote-unquote, that cannot save. Such faith has kind words, but no deeds or actions that back it up. They don't aid the naked and the hungry and the helpless. It is dead because it just rests in ideas. It is not a life that is dependent on or reflective of Jesus. And what James is calling us to do is to live a life that is dependent on Christ and reflective of him. He goes on to say uh, uh, that, where was that? I'm drawing a blank here because I'm looking at my notes and it's not lining up. Uh, there it is. Verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So orthodox theology, someone that reads a lot of books and knows all the answers, is worthless 
apart from works that shows the fact that that is true in their life. It should have a changing faith because the demons believe God's word. They just don't trust God. They don't, they don't have anything that, that backs it up because they stand adamantly opposed to the creator. And that is what James is calling us out on saying, if you claim, you know, Christ, if you think you reflect Christ, but then walk away from this conversation and immediately go back into your sinful actions, like you don't actually know him, that you don't actually love him, then you're no better than the demons that blatantly stand against God. James is not telling us that faith and works are equal to justification, that they, that they don't equal justification. If I do faith and I have works, then God has to justify me. That's not what he's saying. Some would argue that that's that surface level reading of it. But what he is warning us is that there is a dangerous faith that deludes us and doesn't actually justify us. You've probably heard the cliche line that someone will, will miss salvation by 18 inches, right? From the, from the brain to the heart, they, they miss that salvation. This is what James is contrasting, that a living faith that by its very nature reflects the one whom our faith rests on delighting to love others in concrete ways. So a living faith is one that that knows Christ and delights in Christ and delights in loving and serving others, right? Because we live out our love for Christ by the way we live and love and serve other people because we're called to love God and love people. We'll have our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves and to put their needs above my needs. So why is James telling us here <clears throat> that this aspect of discipleship is so important. How, you know, how can we get this message wrong? There's a lot of ways that we can get this message wrong. If we look at it and think that this is just hyperbole, that, that James is kind of just, you know, being, being like blustering about this is how you should do these things and, you know, work hard and, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That is not what James is talking about. He's wanting us to look back and to know what Christ said and to have our eyes open to love him in reality, and to do it in a way to where us as disciples are also effective disciple makers in the way that we live and love other people. I'm going to leave us with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in talking about these passages in James. Because, like I said, it, all of this is it's important for us as an individual, but it's also important for us as disciple makers. Bonhoeffer says this, he says, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for a costly grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring uh, repentance. It is baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for, those, uh, for whose sake a man will pluck out an eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. So as we look at James, I kind of worked backwards. I, I went out into to what it looked like to know Christ and then to love Christ and then to live for Christ, going out to, to Jesus' uh, teachings and John's application of it into just the nitty-gritty of what Paul or of what James is saying here. I'm so used to preaching on Paul stuff uh, to what James is saying here. So James is saying that faith without works is dead. 
And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And John applies that by saying, if you follow his commands, it shows that you know him because you've spent time with him. That's why I love the book of James, because it's so practical and it's so well-connected to, to all of the thoughts of Christ. And so I'm excited that you guys are going through that. And I was just excited that I got to like look at it where Philip said, don't, don't preach through James because I'm preaching on James. Like, well, kind of like circle, circle around there and I'll get to it eventually because I love the book of James. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org. I've tried bones, and